So I don't like the conference title this year. Um, I'm on the board, but nobody asked me what I thought about it. It's beyond deserving hope in a world of performance. I had a visceral reaction to this title when I got the postcard at my house. Um, a few years ago, the conference was called something like, uh, it was called Relief. I had to look it up to remember. Relief, the boldness of grace in a world of expectation. I helped come up with that, and I felt like that was a really strong year. Um, <laughs> but this year, when I got the postcard in the mail, I was like, I really was like, what the hell? I, f I feel personally attacked. Like, this feels like this is about me. Um, because you're telling me that I don't deserve things, and you're also naming my most favorite demand that the world makes of me, which is the demand to perform. Um, a few years back, when I started writing and speaking for Mockingbird, I was having one of those self-congratulatory moments that perhaps some of you have had when you realize that your theology is just better than everyone else's. And I was, you know, thinking things like, um, I know that Jesus paid it all. Like, these other people haven't figured it out yet, but I know that. And, like, while everyone else is, like, you know, hustling for their worth, like, I know that my Redeemer lives. <laughs> um, but, but then I realized, and this is a truly, like, um, uncomfortable, painful moment for me. I realized that I have actually taken a theology that tells me that the work of the cross is complete, and I have used that theology to optimize like mediocre, low-level celebrity. You should feel uncomfortable right now. Um, I'm on a stage right now talking about performance, so let's just have a minute with that. Um, the devil prowls like a lion. So I've performed my whole life. Um, when I was a little kid and my parents who were self-employed, struggling artist types would have clients over for dinner, these clients would bring their children. And the kids would come over to the house and I'm sure they just thought, you know, it was like a play date. Like they'd get to play dolls, we'd do Legos, maybe there'd be a movie. What they did not realize was that for hours before they got there, I had been planning a show. And we were going to produce the hell out of it before the mac and cheese came out. Um, there was like bad choreography. There was uh, a lot of, of somersaults. Um, it was also the early 90s. So the image I had of making a grand entrance, uh, let's see if I can get this, um, was how like the really cool rappers would come in with a boombox already playing on their shoulders. And so as an eight-year-old white child in Mississippi, this is how it would begin every one of the shows for my parents' clients. I had no regard for my, my parents' discomfort, their clients' discomfort, their children's discomfort. I was like Gypsy Rose Lee or like Joan Crawford, you know, like we had a show to produce. Eventually, my parents, and I have very clear memories of this, started to sit me down before they'd have people over for dinner, and they would say simply this, no more shows, Sarah. <laughs> because, because they knew that, like, I had cooked up some plans for my Reba McIntyre cassette tape and my, like, red and green gymnastics mat, and we were going to do it.
Um, you don't have to be some sort of a weirdo kid to know what performance feels like. You don't have to get up on stage to know what it feels like to perform because I truly believe that most of us are performing most of the time. Um, recently, we had this really crazy thing happen in our family. We found out we had a family member that we did not know we had. I, okay, so like six weeks ago, didn't know this guy existed. Now, we have a new family member. Like a close family member. I'd go into more detail, but I'm already an oversharer, so I'm trying to respect that. But when this person who has been looking for us for 15 years, this new relative, finally got me on the phone, he said something like, you know, I found you guys on the internet and you're, you're just like real involved in the church. And I wasn't sure if you would want to talk to me. Which was a really horrible moment. Um, because I realized what we do look like on the internet, right? Like my husband and I are both ordained. Um, we've got two kids, a boy and a girl, like all the most blessed people have. That was a joke. Um, we shop at the J. Crew outlet, you know. Um, I don't have a nose ring anymore. My hair is not short and fuchsia anymore. Um, we're like internet churchy gold, right? Um, we wear white robes in photographs, like that's completely normal. And I kind of like had this moment where I was like, I feel like we are internet, like modern day Pharisees. Um, this photograph uh, was not hard to find on the internet. Um, beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the high seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts. Like, uh-oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it wasn't just that our performance had failed this new relative, it was that Christianity's performance as a whole had failed him, right? Because just a cursory glance at scripture will tell you that Jesus was not interested in people who had their lives pulled together, and he definitely was not interested in religious authorities. But this is what we've told ourselves is like the highest rung on the ladder to heaven, and it's what we perform for the world. It's what Christianity performs for the world. It's definitely what the Water Sea Church for performs for the world. And this almost cost us a relative. I mean, think about that. That almost cost us a relative. He almost didn't reach out to us because of it. This is a side note. But if you have a family secret, if you're sitting in this room and there's a child people don't know about, you just wait. Because 23andMe and Ancestry.com are coming for your ass. So you better tell people. That's, just, that's your PSA, okay? Maybe you don't have this in your family, although I will say I've talked about this once before and like 12 people sent me emails, so I'm now convinced everyone has it in their family, but maybe you don't have this in your family. But maybe you're a parent. If you're a parent and you have ever been nicer to your child at school than you are in your living room, then you are a performer, okay? I'm always struck by how high 
all the mother's voices are at school and loud. Like, we're all, like, hot and loud. We're all, like, desperate sopranos that want everyone to hear us, you know? And super patient. Like, there's always this dialogue that's like, oh, honey. I'm in Texas. Oh, honey, did you forget your water bottle again? It's okay. We don't mind spending a car payment on water bottles this year for school. But if you're at home and you have finally gotten your children to bed and then one of them comes downstairs to ask for a band-aid for a mosquito bite that doesn't exist, your voice is like three octaves lower. Like you're one of those scary, like um, scampering, like, you know, there was like that horror movie that came out and it was like recently, I just saw the previews, I can't watch the movies, but it was like a nun, you know, and she's got like black eyes and she's like, Bleh! that's what I'm like when my kids come downstairs. I'm like, who da And so it's just, it's, it's jarring even for me how different a mother I can be, you know? Because I'm performing parenthood in those moments. Because, I mean, this is dark to say out loud, but sometimes I think we're not being nice to the kid because it's good for the kid. We're being nice because morning drop-off can feel like ground zero for judgment. And we just want to look like really easy breezy. You know, we're just like one of those moms that's just like, whatever, it's fine. When like nobody's easy or breezy, you know, like nobody is. And I think the more that we force ourselves to do this, the more we force ourselves to appear like nice people to the world outside of our homes, I actually think the meaner it makes us to the people that we love most in our houses. The greater the law, the greater the trespass. Um, I do want to talk about marriage a little bit, just because I think marriage is like ground zero for this kind of stuff. Let's see if I can get this to come up. Awesome. Marriage is full of performance, like chocked full of it. But it's also, I think ideally, it's the first place performance fails which is like this tiny miracle in marriage. Because if you're connected to this person at all, they kind of know intrinsically when you're this shadow version of yourself. Um, I remember when I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian wife. I didn't, I, I, you know, when I married my husband, it was, well, and for me, it wasn't just Christian wife. It, my husband was ordained when we got married. So it was like Christian pastor's wife, Christian priest's wife, which is, not a title anyone thought I was going to get. Um, so it was a lot for me to figure out. So I tried to educate myself. I picked up some of those books about, like bad books, about how to be a Christian wife, a Christian woman in this world. Like, how do I do a good job of this? And what was very difficult for me was that I'd already missed so many of the qualifiers, right? Quietness. I'm not going to be good at that. Um, gentleness, not how the Lord made me, you know. Virginity, that ship had sailed like a long time ago. So like, here we are, you know. Um, but, but I tried out, I mean, you can't fake virginity, but I tried being like quiet or what, you know, gentle or what, like, oh, can I bring this to the table? And, that kind of, and my husband, like very early on was like, what, are you okay? Like, I married a loud woman. I like her. Like, what is this? When marriages fall apart and people say, I had no idea that my spouse was unhappy, 
a little bit of me, honestly, is like, really? Like, I, I, I find it hard to believe. And I see this a lot in ministry. You know, I talk to couples a lot. But I do think there's a very dangerous thing we can do in marriage where we actually perform happy. And we do it for, some of us can do it for a very, very long time. I heard a story just a few weeks ago about a man who had married a woman from Mississippi. Uh, Men love to tell me stories about their first wives from Mississippi. We're like a genre. Um, (laughs) But this guy had married a woman with my name, and I don't know if y'all know how to say my name, um, where I'm from. You don't say Sarah. You say Sarah. Sarah. Um, this is how all of my family in the Mississippi Delta still says my name. So this husband was not from Mississippi, so he called his wife Sarah. That's how he said her name. And after over a decade of marriage, when they were in divorce proceedings, she leaned across the table full of lawyers and said to her husband, you never learned to say my name the right way. It's Sarah. That's crazy. (laughs) But for years, she had never told him. This was her preferred way to pronounce her name. And it sounds like she had been mad as hell about it. And I'm sure she was performing like nice Christian wife or like nice Southern Christian wife, which is like its own terrifying category. We don't even have time for that. So, So she let her husband call her the wrong name. The fallout from performance in marriage is huge. It's huge. Because if we can manage to carry it on long enough, to carry on the performance long enough, then we begin to hate the performer within, and we begin to hate the person we're married to because we start to ask ourselves questions like, do they just love the performer version of me? Or do they love me? Which is really the question for me today right? It's the thing I want to handle this morning. And um, I think it's something St. Paul talked about, too. I think Ethan uses scripture. I love at these conferences when we all pull the same scripture, um, because there's something very, like, Holy Ghost about that. Anyway, I love it. So, here we are. And I went with the King James, because it sounds better. Okay. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. At this point, I'm always like, all right, Paul, blameless? Really? Like, we're going with that word? That's a big word. But I feel like, I know this is a a stretch, especially in a Mockingbird conference, but I feel like in some areas of our lives, like if you have on blinders and you're just looking at one thing, we can turn out some pretty blameless performances. At least it can feel that way. So I just, these are like for fun and funny, and please don't take them too seriously and don't see yourself in them, but these are blameless performances that I kind of, that made me laugh, um, and I'll talk about them. Oh, okay, great. Okay, blameless performances. So you run a really successful church. 
You're at like a really big church. We've got some clergy in the room. Like you're killing it. You know what I mean? Like you're nailing it. Everything's going well. I love when we say killing it and nailing it about church stuff. I'm like, ooh, you're killing it. You're nailing it. Like things are packed up. Maybe you're at one of those, those churches where you get to like get in front of people and be like, hey, church. You know, those churches. Do you guys know that? Okay, you don't. But anyway, yes. There's like, you know, hey, ch- hey church. Or you say stuff like, we just want to love, you know, we just want to love on you, which by the way, don't say that anymore. Stop saying that in church. It's weird. Um, don't say it. Um, but, but everything's going gangbusters at church, but like, you're never home. You're never home. You don't see your kids. You don't see your spouse. You're never home. But you know what? Somebody's got to run the hell out of the Great Commission. So might as well be you, right? I mean, that's what the scripture says. Nail the Great Commission. So (sighs) maybe you are the skinniest lady at the party. I've been the skinniest lady at the party before. I know what that feels like, so I can talk about it. Um, Maybe you're like that elusive size two, which we were all a size two in first grade, just for the record. Uh, But the goal now, which I think, and it's, it's worse now than it was like 10 years ago. The goal now is that you have to look really skinny and it also has to look effortless, which is impossible because like at 32, and this is science, it's not, uh, your metabolism literally just falls out of your body. Like it's just like one day you're like, whoop, you know, on the sidewalk, like there it goes, there's my metabolism. Um, So like if you're really skinny, you're probably working really hard for it and it sucks. Like it sucks. Because you're hungry a lot, right? And then all of this work and Jesus doesn't even care if you're skinny. Like he don't give a what for what you look like. You know what I mean? And even worse news, like you'll never be like skinnier than you are in a coffin. You just get skinnier and skinnier in a coffin. Like that's how it goes. And whenever I say that, people are always like, I love people when I say that. People are always like, well, I'm going to be cremated. I'm like, well, you've never been lighter than when you're a pile of ashes. You know, like, you can't outrun this. So I don't have anything to say about the last one. Kids went to Ivy League school on a Quidditch scholarship. Um, Except that it's so sad and so funny. So I had to put it up there. And it is like the embodiment of blameless performance, right? So all of this is to say that there is a cost to our performance, this blameless performance, and it is real. And we forget, actually, that we could have stopped performing a long time ago. Um, Okay, we'll read this. Another King James, so get ready. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dumb that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So I want to look with y'all real quick at verse 9. That, that verse that says, through the faith of Christ, because it's important. I went to the King James Version in part for this because it's more faithful, actually, to the original translation. 
because some of our more modern translations use a different word. So they say, instead of through the faith of Christ, they say faith in Christ, which shifts the responsibility entirely onto your very incapable shoulders, right? That's what happens when they change that word. Because we begin to ask ourselves crazy-making questions like, well, faith in Christ? Like, do I have enough faith in Christ? Can I perform my faith in Christ well? And what I want to say to you today is it's not your faith in Christ that God looks at, but, but the faith of Christ, the faithfulness, the faithfulness of the one who accomplishes our righteousness, not us, but him. He was the end of the performance, right? The curtain dropped. In fact, it split in two, right? It split in two. And this is good and horrible news for those of us who think we can tap dance our way into salvation. Now, if y'all think that this talk is too personal, just get ready, because it's about to get worse. Um, I've never been very good at contemplative prayer or meditation or just quiet time with the Lord because these activities seem wildly unproductive to me. That was a joke. <laughs> um, but they do seem wildly unproductive, right? I mean, that's the truth. But recently, my, literally my physical body was giving me signals that I needed to slow down. Um, I have a reoccurring neck injury, so fun, um, that's nine years old. I've, I fell on black ice, actually, when we moved to New York. And when I get really stressed, my neck will like lock up to the point that I can't move my head for two or three days. Um, and that was happening kind of like on a six-week cycle. I was unreasonably angry with the people I love the most. I wanted to leave one job and I didn't really know if I was going to have another job to go to. And so I was realizing I needed to find a way to slow myself down. So I did yoga years ago. Um, Y'all like, she's about to talk about yoga. I'm like, yeah, we're about to talk about yoga. Um, I did power yoga naturally, because if you're going to do yoga, I mean, why bother if it's not power yoga, right? So... Um, Years ago, when we lived in New York, I did power yoga and uh, haven't done it in a long time. But I remembered this pose that we closed every class with. And if you've done yoga, you've done this pose. It comes at the end of class. It's about five to ten minutes long. You lay flat on your back on the floor with your eyes closed, hands out like this for, like, for, for a while. And it's called Shavasana. That's the name of the pose. If you've done yoga, you've probably done Shavasana. And for me, it was miserable, but I knew it did slow me down, so I kind of went back to it. Um, part of the reason I found Shavasana a compelling thing to try again was because I remembered my yoga teacher had said, we don't do Shavasana to meditate, and we don't do Shavasana to rest. We do Shavasana because it teaches us to practice dying. Um, so, like, tell me to have quiet time with the Lord, and I'm going to run screaming in the opposite direction. But tell me to practice dying, and I'm like, when do we start? You know, so 
So since November, I've been laying on my floor most mornings with a timer, because this can't go on forever, um, with my eyes shut, breathing, and almost immediately, I was given a vision. So I want to talk about that vision with you guys today. Um, I'm kind of going to begin to end by talking about it. Um, it might have just been particular to my life and my sin and my neuroses and my busyness, but maybe it wasn't, so I'm going to tell you about it. So I'm not an artist, and I had Mockingbird's own CJ Green make some drawings for you guys, which was actually the perfect thing because um, the vision was very... Um, it, it looked like a black and white etching. I mean, that is how it felt in my head. So, um, so this is the, the vision initially. So in this first vision, um, there's, a, there's a pile of accomplishments on the floor, and I'm standing several feet away from them. And it's incredibly painful for me. First of all, I am my accomplishments. I mean, I'm not, but I'm not sure I know that. And so to have them pulled away from me was really hard. Um, the other difficult thing was that it was just an indiscriminate pile of accomplishments, right? And that sucks because I've like worked hard for these, thank you very much, and now they're just all shoved together. Um, I wrote one book, I think about writing another one sometimes. Um, I'm ordained. I got like a real certificate for that. Not from the internet. Um, I'm a firstborn daughter, so accomplishments are love for me. Um, and there they were, sitting in a garbage heap, right? In a pile, a pile of dung, as St. Paul might have said. And there I was. The, the only comfort for me in this vision was that I could feel that God was looking down at me in this and that he loved me. Um, and that was very clear to me. It was still painful, but it was very clear to me. But God felt definitely like he was looking down and definitely distant. So I hesitated to share this next bit with you, but we're doing it. Um, the day after I had this vision, a very old friend from childhood called me, and I don't use the word mystic casually, but this woman is a mystic. She's just, just unlike anybody else in my life I've, I've ever known. We've known each other since we were six. Her name is Monique. Hey, Mississippi. Um, and Monique is the first person who ever told me about Jesus, like outside of church. She loves Jesus in a way that I still can't even figure out. Like, it, it, I, it's, it's just the most beautiful thing I know, right? Um, as a girl in Mississippi, and I don't have her permission to tell you this, Monique would get up every morning and hold her cat Esther, named for Queen Esther in the Bible, naturally, and watch the 700 Club, and she would hold up Esther, Queen Esther the cat for the 700 Club, and they would say the sinner's prayer of salvation together so that she and Esther could both go to heaven, you know? I would go to church with Monique sometimes, and at her church, which were usually, they were usually Pentecostal storefront churches, um, people spoke without hesitancy about God in a way that was very unfamiliar to me. 
Um, I remember being there one day for a baptism, and that was, as an Episcopalian, just bizarre, right? Because there was like a, first of all, it was an adult, and there was a gigantic uh, plexiglass bath tub, or I don't know what they call it, baptismal font, maybe, we'll go there, we'll call it that, um, that this person approached, and as soon as it happened, everybody in the room put their, put their heads down and their hands out, and they started to speak in tongues. And in the Episcopal Church, I just think the best policy is do what everybody else is doing, right? I mean, I feel like that's what liturgy is. We have all these, like, really highfalutin definitions. It's basically just, like, do what everybody else is doing, you know? And so I put my head down and my hands out, and I went, jibber-jabber, 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 jibber-jabber. So Monique and I have not seen each other in a long, long time, in years. And she called me, which is weird now because... Um, So I'm 36. I remember talking to people on the phone, but we don't really do that anymore. And sometimes when people call me now, I'm like, oh, why are you calling me, you know? And, but when Monique called, there was just, I picked up the phone and I sat there in my driveway. It was one of those, those things where you just like, you're like, I can't believe I'm talking to you on the phone. I'm just going to sit here for this. And we literally just kind of talked through the first 10 years of marriage We talked through children being born. We talked through diagnoses being made. We talked through all the struggles that we had faced in marriage. Who are we now? What does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to be a wife? Profound struggles. And then Monique stopped and she said this. She said, you know, Sarah, I read everything that you write and it sounds like you and I love you. And I started to weep because Monique knew me before I had any accomplishments. And she knew me before I had embedded in the very depths of my sin-sick soul that performance equals love. And in some ways, Monique loved me the way that the Lord loves me. So the next day, I was nervous about laying down on the floor (laughs) because I was unsure of what would happen. And there was the vision again, only it had changed. Um, There was the pile of stuff I had done. And there was me, but only this time Jesus was there, and he was hugging me. And if you know me very well at all, I am not a hugger. I have to remind myself that my children need hugs for their development. So it was very strange for me to be hugged and also for it to be comforting for me. Um, And I realized that this is actually how God sees me. Um, Me without my pile of earnings, me without any real ability to deserve anything, just me in the arms of Jesus. That's it. There is a cost to our performances, and it is disastrous because they can lead us to believe the worst about God. They can lead us to believe that God might simply love our performances or our achievements, but not really love us. And this is quickly followed by the feeling that God becomes distant in our hearts, and we convince ourselves that we should 
pray harder or try to find more devotion or essentially just dance faster, right? Like that we need to put on a show for God, that we need to give God the performance of his lifetime, you know, or at least of our lifetime. Only none of this ever makes us feel closer to God. It only always makes us feel worse. But I guess all I wanted to say today is that perhaps God just wants us to lay down and to die, to realize that the performance is no longer needed, that the audience has left the building, and that even on stage we do not stand there alone. But Jesus is up there too, telling us that he loved us, that the show is over, and that we don't have to perform. And also, I think Jesus is up there with us because he knows that we could really use a hug. Amen.